Well, it has come to pass. President Trump, a man who many of us treated as a buffoon and only took seriously as a threat at the 11th hour, will be the 45th President of the United States with a Republican Congress behind him and with at least one vacancy, probably more, on the Supreme Court to fill. So, what went wrong, and how bad is this? Well, I think there are two parts to this story. The first is unambiguously depressing, and this is the part that has been seized on by most liberals. But it's only half the story, and it is this. Trump has ascended to power despite showing every sign of being dangerously unfit for it, and by exposing in himself and in the electorate the worst that America has to offer. Racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, a contempt for the most vulnerable among us, intimations of fascism, a positive love of bullying, total disdain for our democratic institutions, a willingness to make threats of political violence just for the fun of it, a contempt for science, and a love of conspiracy theories. I mean, I, I could run through it all again, the crazy things he said and the toxic alliances he's made. The irony is, if he had been merely half as bad, he would have seemed worse. He would have been more recognizably dangerous. There were so many awful moments that the media couldn't focus on them for long enough or, or weigh their significance. And the big things were as big as they get, right? Climate change is a hoax. Why can't we use our nuclear weapons? Maybe nuclear proliferation is a good thing. Let, let the Saudis and the Japanese and the South Koreans build their own nukes. Who's to say we should support our NATO alliances? What have they done for us? Putin is a great leader. Maybe we should just default on our debt, cut a better deal. Any one of those things should have ended it. But of course, the little things were just as weird and should have been just as disqualifying. I mean, we have just elected a president who has bragged about invading the dressing rooms of beauty pageant contestants so that he could see them naked when they were effectively his employees. I mean, he, he owned the pageant. And then he even bullied some of these young women publicly, some on social media in the wee hours of the morning while campaigning for the presidency. And then he denied doing any of these things when no denial was even possible. And we had all seen his tweets. And in response to the astonishment of the media, he looked the American people in the eye and said, no one respects women more than I do. No one. And half the country accepted that as, what, the truth? As good theater? As sketch comedy? I mean, there are really no words to describe how far from normal we have drifted here. David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, described the situation the night of the election uh, in a piece entitled An American Tragedy. Now, I'll read a little of that so you get a sense of what the liberal elites were thinking at 3 a.m. 
Quote, The election of Donald Trump to the presidency is nothing less than a tragedy for the American Republic, a tragedy for the Constitution, and a triumph for the forces, at home and abroad, of nativism, authoritarianism, misogyny, and racism. Trump's shocking victory, his ascension to the presidency, is a sickening event in the history of the United States and liberal democracy. On January 20, 2017, we will bid farewell to the first African-American president, a man of integrity, dignity, and generous spirit, and witness the inauguration of a Khan who did little to spurn endorsement by forces of xenophobia and white supremacy. It is impossible to react to this moment with anything less than revulsion and profound anxiety. And then he goes on. In the coming days, commentators will attempt to normalize this event. They will try to soothe their readers and viewers with thoughts about the, quote, innate wisdom and essential decency of the American people. They will downplay the virulence of the nationalism displayed, the cruel decision to elevate a man who rides in a gold-plated airliner but who has staked his claim with the populist rhetoric of blood and soil. The commentators, in their attempt to normalize this tragedy, will also find ways to discount the bumbling and destructive behavior of the FBI, the malign influence of Russian intelligence, the free pass, the hours of uninterrupted, unmediated coverage of his rallies provided to Trump by cable television, particularly in the early months of his campaign. We will be asked to count on the stability of American institutions, the tendency of even the most radical politicians to rein themselves in when admitted to office. Liberals will be admonished as smug, disconnected from suffering, as if so many Democratic voters were unacquainted with poverty, struggle, and misfortune. There's no reason to believe this palaver. There's no reason to believe that Trump and his band of associates, Chris Christie, Rudolph Giuliani, Mike Pence, and yes, Paul Ryan, are in any mood to govern as Republicans within the traditional boundaries of decency. Trump was not elected on a platform of decency, fairness, moderation, compromise, and the rule of law. He was elected in the main on a platform of resentment. Fascism is not our future. It cannot be. We cannot allow it to be so. But this is surely the way fascism can begin. End quote. I think most of that's true, unfortunately, but it's not the whole truth. And the parts that are true are probably not worth dwelling on at this point. I'm not sure how useful it will be to stay in the well of blame and despair and to resist, quote, normalizing this situation. But it is true that the normalizing seems like an act of prayer. I mean, just, just consider Trump's victory speech, which was alarming for how untrumpian it was. I mean, it read like it was written by Van Jones on Ambien. It was the most anodyne bit of fence-mending. But you could feel the desperation in the media to read into his surprisingly gracious notes the normalcy that Remnick is talking about here. I mean, maybe we were all just wrong about him, right? Maybe he's a nice guy after all. What are the chances of that? Is it possible that an ethical person merely pretended to be a total asshole for 18 months? It seems somehow far-fetched. But what are we to make of the fact that Trump had nothing but nice things to say about Clinton 
I mean, what happened to lock her up? Does anyone care that the Trump who spoke on the night of the election was totally unrecognizable? Who did his supporters think they had elected? Were his supporters surprised to see him merely praise Hillary? Is it all theater? Who is this guy? Will he attempt to do anything he promised to do? Does anyone know? Does Ivanka have any idea what her dad will do as president? Now, I've gotten a fair amount of grief from people at this point for having been wrong about the election. I'm not sure what they mean. I admit I did jinx it by posting a suitably repellent picture of Trump on Twitter early in the day and saying, bye-bye, Donald. Now, of course, that wasn't a prediction. I was simply saying how nice it would be to never think about him again. Of course, when I sent that tweet, the polls were giving him around a 20% chance of winning. Now, whether the polls were wrong or not is anyone's guess at this point. A 20% chance of winning is not nothing, right? Spend a few minutes with some dice and see how often a 20% chance comes up. It comes up quite frequently sometimes on the very first roll. So, I jinx the election. Sorry about that. But surely it can't have been a failure of judgment to have trusted the most reputable polls. Basically, everyone was doing that. What, el- what else was there to trust? Just the, the torrents of hatred I saw on social media? But the story about what happened with the polls will be interesting in the weeks and months ahead. And, and the truth is, I, I always had a bad feeling about the election, and that's why I talked about it so much on this podcast. I, mean, I could tell that Hillary's flaws as a candidate were causing people to ignore Trump's flaws as a human being. Well, we're about to find out how high a price we and the rest of the world will pay for that. Speaking personally, I can say I feel that I left more or less everything on the field. I know I alienated many of you in how fully I disparaged Trump. And I kept doing it even at the risk of boring those of you who actually agreed with me because I thought it was so important. So I don't honestly see how I could have done any more. And at this moment, that's actually a good feeling. I was preparing myself for this moment. And I certainly know many scientists and business people and writers who can't say the same. But who knows, the fact that they held their tongues may appear fairly prudent at this moment. We're about to see an astonishingly vindictive man sweep to power, with not many checks on his power. And he has threatened to go after his enemies, to jail Hillary, to sue the women who accused him of sexual assault, to change our libel laws, to go after the Washington Post. Again, this is not a normal moment in American history. Now, many people have asked me whether I regret not backing Bernie Sanders. If I'm so trusting of polls, why didn't I trust the polls that showed him to have a better chance than Clinton against Trump? Because Sanders was totally untested. He had never been subjected to opposition research the way Clinton had. We knew what the Republicans were going to say about Clinton. Who knows what they would have done to Sanders? It's true that he would have drawn some of the 
isolationist and anti-establishment vote that went to Trump. And perhaps he would have turned out more voters than Clinton did. And it looks like that could have been decisive. It seems that Hillary got 6 million fewer votes than Obama did in 2012, and 10 million fewer than he got in 2008. So Democrats didn't show up. And I hope all those Bernie supporters who stayed home or who voted for a third party will be paying attention over the next four years. But I share the view that the election was generally a repudiation of the left and of political correctness in particular, as much as it was just a vote for change. It was a repudiation of black and brown identity politics by white identity politics. And it's important to point out that this isn't the same as racism. I don't believe that a majority of the people who voted for Trump were motivated by racism. There are people who voted for Obama twice who voted for Trump. Racism cannot be the best way to explain that. And this is where the prevailing analysis on the left is wrong, of the sort that I just read from David Remnick in The New Yorker. Yes, we have just elected a man who was officially endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan. So you can be sure that every white racist in the country voted for Trump. But there are millions of other decent people who have reasonable concerns about a movement like Black Lives Matter. And most of these people probably voted for Trump, too. These people are not racists. They were simply recoiling from charges of racism and from a toxic brand of identity politics. Much of what has been coming out of the left, not everything, but much of it, particularly about race and about law and order and about Islamophobia and terrorism, about issues that are fundamental to the security of our society, has had all the moral clarity and intellectual honesty of the OJ verdict, which is to say none at all. And I'm confident that many people who don't perceive Trump to be a dangerous con man in the way that I do probably voted for him out of sheer exasperation. They were sick of being called racist for not worrying about Halloween costumes on our Ivy League campuses. So so millions of these people, along with real racists, told all you whinging social justice warriors at Yale and Brown to go fuck yourselves. And can you really blame them? I mean, safe spaces, trigger warnings, new gender pronouns, getting Muslim student groups to deplatform speakers like Ayan Hirsi Ali and Bill Maher. Was that the cause of your generation? That's the trench you are willing to die in? So the question is, would a democratic campaign that leaned even further to the left have prevailed in this situation? I doubt it. And did Sanders have anything sensible to say about foreign policy? Would he have been able to address fears about terrorism? It certainly didn't seem that way at the time. And I suspect that this really is the crux of the issue. At least it's the main reason why even those who saw Trump's flaws didn't care about them. The problem that worried me the whole time is the left's total failure to speak honestly about Islam and terrorism and the refugee crisis in Europe. And this, I think, was decisive. Certainly was one of the things that, had it gone the other way, would have given us a different result. Admittedly, it seems strange to cite polls at this point, 
but what else can I do? The exit polls show that the people who said their primary concerns were terrorism and immigration voted overwhelmingly for Trump, whereas those who were concerned about the economy or foreign policy voted for Clinton. So it wasn't the economy stupid this time around, though economic fears certainly played a role. And it wasn't just poor whites who supported Trump. The median income of Trump voters was $72,000. And I think that in this election, concerns about terrorism and immigration largely boil down to a concern about Islamism and to the fear and distrust provoked by liberal lies about it. Immigration means other things, of course, but I don't think it's mainly that there were a lot of white people whose median income is $72,000 who want to pick strawberries for a living. If my collisions on social media told me anything over the last year, it's that many people were nearly single-issue voters when it came to Islam. I would bet that this accounts for many more people than voted for a third-party candidate, which was also probably decisive. The fact that we have a president who wouldn't even use the phrase Islamic extremism, who could even say things like terrorism has less to do with Islam than any other religion, right? And the fact that Clinton seemed to embrace this delusion, even though she did on occasion use the phrase radical jihadism, so that made any sense. That was a terrible problem. And of course, the fact that she and her husband had taken tens of millions of dollars from the Saudis and other Islamist regimes didn't help. Couple that with this unexplained desire to increase the number of Syrian refugees by 550% without ever acknowledging what is going wrong in Europe. This was a deal breaker for many people. And I heard from these people endlessly over the last year. And the problem, of course, is that people are right to be worried about Islamism and jihadism. And all the left has offered on this point are lies and sanctimony and charges of racism and bigotry. Worrying about Islam more than any other religion at this moment is not a sign of racism or bigotry. Muslims themselves should be worried more about Islam at this moment than about Mormonism or Anglicanism or Judaism. This is basic human sanity. And most people know it. But Clinton was the sort of politician who in the immediate aftermath of the Orlando massacre spoke only about gun control and then issued grave warnings about a rise in Islamophobia when we had just suffered yet another jihadist atrocity on American soil. This was unforgivably stupid. And I knew it at the time that this was the sort of stupidity that could pave the way for Trump. I even wrote a section of a speech I thought Clinton should give about Islamism and jihadism and put it on my blog. It would have been so easy for her to have made sense on this issue and to have differentiated a sane understanding of jihadism from bigotry against Muslims in general. But she couldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. All of these things contributed to her loss and to the rise of Trump. So the question now is, how do we move forward having declared the next president to be an absolute jackass 
and a sexual predator. And as I said in a previous podcast, a liar of a sort one would only expect to find in a mental hospital. How do we move from making jokes about placing the nuclear codes in the hands of a dangerous narcissist to actually placing the nuclear codes into his hands? Well, I'm afraid we just do. And we hope that this man who appears to lie about everything has also been lying about how awful a person he is. Let's hope he isn't who he has seemed to be. Let's hope that he really is a cipher. Let's hope that he was only pretending not to believe in climate change. Let's hope that he was only pretending to admire Vladimir Putin. Let's hope that he was only pretending to believe the sorts of conspiracy theories that helped get him elected. Let's hope he really is a con man without any core commitments other than to maintain his own fame and glory. Because then there's a chance that knowledgeable people might be able to influence him. I thought President Obama struck the right note yesterday. We all must hope for Trump's success at this point. We want his presidency to be a good one. It's as if we're all on an airplane together, and the real pilot has died. And now a man who has never flown an airplane has taken the controls and is attempting an emergency landing. And we're all stuck in the back of the plane. So we're rooting for the man in the cockpit. Of course, before he got his hands on the controls, some of us complained about how unqualified he was. There were a few other people back here with a lot of time spent flying planes. But this guy stormed the cockpit, and now he's in the pilot seat, and the runway is in view, and we are out of time. So let's hope he's talking to the people in air traffic control. But the problem, of course, is that it actually matters who's in the tower, right? Just, Just think about who Trump has surrounded himself with. Rudy Giuliani, Chris Christie, Sarah Palin, Mike Pence. This is a clown car of ideologues and incompetence with a couple of religious maniacs thrown in. But again, we want him to land this plane. And it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't matter if we all wind up covered in vomit. We will be grateful just to be alive. And I will be very grateful if, after four years, Donald Trump hasn't set back human progress a generation. This all may sound like hyperbole, but who knows what sort of mistakes this man is capable of. And if you said that about Clinton, you were just wrong. Even with all her flaws, we have no idea who Trump is or what he will do. He probably doesn't even know. But we do know that he has less understanding about the responsibilities he's about to assume than any president before him. Indeed, he has less understanding than any candidate most of us have ever conceived of. So, let's hope he's a quick study. And let's hope there are thousands of good people who are willing to work for him. Which brings up a point I saw raised on social media by a few people. No matter how horrified you are by this result, no matter how judgmental you are of the people who enabled him, people like Paul Ryan, 
You have to hope that the best people available will come forward now and be willing to serve in Trump's administration, people with good reputations and real expertise. So, so we can't afford to question the motives or integrity of anyone who would join this administration. We want the best people who can get in the door. And we have to hope that being president of the United States brings out the best in Donald Trump. Campaigning for the presidency brought out the worst. It showed what he's like as an embattled narcissist and fabulist and demagogue. But now he's won, right? Now he will be surrounded by people seeking the the warm glow of his power. Now he will inspire fear, right? Actual fear, not merely scorn in his critics. He is no longer just a clown. He's the most powerful clown on earth. We have to hope that winning to this degree will pacify some of his demons. Is there a historical or psychological precedent for this? I have no idea. But we're about to find out what happens to a man with a a famously, palpably, visibly unhealthy ego who suddenly triumphs over everyone who ever doubted him. I mean, this was a man when he voted in New York at his polling place, got jeered by a crowd on Tuesday in a city that voted 87% against him. And one day he's going to ride back into town on Air Force One. Imagine the way his ego feels right now. I mean, mean, just imagine the satisfaction Trump will feel when he takes possession of the White House and shows President Obama the door. The first black president who humiliated him in front of all the Washington elites at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Go watch footage of that. All those laughs at his expense. Trump has been a punchline for decades. He's been the Rodney Dangerfield of billionaires. But that moment with Obama at the podium was the worst. And now he gets to tell Barack Hussein Obama to get out of his house and then tear his legacy to shreds. You've got the first black president being shown the door by a man who always questioned his legitimacy in racist terms and who has now been officially endorsed by the KKK. Only Shakespeare could do this moment justice. So, while Trump seems like he could become some sort of Caligula with an iPhone, we have to hope that our democratic institutions will restrain him and that the awesome responsibilities thrust his way, the responsibility of running a superpower, will bring out the better angels of his nature, if he has any. So, I think normalizing this mess might be the best we can do for the time being. I mean, needless to say, a a pendulum swing into left-wing identity politics will not be helpful, but it seems extremely likely to occur. In fact, it's already happening with these ridiculous protests we're seeing under the banner of Not My President. Good luck with that. How many of you voted for a third party or didn't vote at all? 
What we need are smart, ethical people in the political center who can defend freedom of speech and science and the norms of civil discourse from their enemies on both the right and the left. And insofar as I can do anything useful in that area, I will do my best. That's part of what this podcast is for. And if you guys have any ideas about who I should talk to on the podcast, about the fate of civilization, I'll be very happy to hear your ideas. And I promise I will be getting to interesting topics totally unrelated to politics. In fact, I will mostly do this. Because what I say about politics doesn't seem to do much. As always, you can support the podcast at samharris.org forward slash support. And you can also support it on a per-episode basis at patreon.com forward slash samharris. About 2% of listeners regularly support the podcast now, and I'm hoping to bring that up to 10%. That will be a game changer. And if you are already a supporter, please know that your help is greatly appreciated. And once again, thanks for listening. Until next time. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.